Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast, brought to you in partnership with Missio Alliance and Kairos Partnerships. Good morning, Doug. Good morning, JR. Always great to see you. Yeah, buddy. So, Doug, you and I were just talking. We have a great conversation coming up oh with Chuck DeGroat, but um, around this idea of narcissism. Yes. And I think we hear that term in our culture a lot. Um, in a lot of different spheres, maybe it's in politics, or maybe it's with friends, or on social media, or we throw around the term, you're such a narcissist. But narcissism is a big deal. It really is a huge deal. It I feel like narcissism is like this ginormous boat that runs through something, and the wake just covers everything. That is a great metaphor, Doug. I really like that. Yes, the wake that it leaves behind. There's so much destruction. There really is. And you and I, without giving out too many details, we we know a ministry leader, uh, a former ministry leader, who is a narcissist and has totally caused great destruction yes. to his family and those around him yes. because of his mistakes. Yes. And I think it's been so difficult because what happens is, and, and this is something, I think this is probably textbook narcissist stuff, but they don't even see the damage that it's doing to everyone around them. Yeah. And that that's what feels so so damaging and difficult in the season I feel that like you know we've kind of been in as we've walked through you know different people but the specific person with some of the, the the stuff that's happened and it's just made it so hard and sticky and how do we talk about it and I think for me it's almost like I feel that tension of like what does grace and truth look like in this moment and yeah. then you start second guessing yourself like am I being a jerk am I so it's it just feels like a mess yeah yeah and this conversation with Chuck is just it was such a fantastic conversation, but there's so many layers to it because what is it like when, like, how do we know we're not a narcissist Yes, as a leader? What narcissism in the church? What what if I, as a pastor, like, what are signs of that? How do I keep from being a narcissist? But also like, what do we do if someone who's leading us is a narcissist? Like, how do we handle that? Yeah. <laughs> that was, I feel like it was almost like you moved from, uh, we need to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves <laughs> to just even in terms of yeah what what does that feel like when you're under uh underneath someone who is a narcissistic leader or is going in that direction but yeah. you know i i think too like it is it feels like in some ways it's a heavier conversation because we're talking about some some, some tough stuff and that might actually bring up some things in each of us like yeah. whoa i should pay attention to that but like what do you sense jr are some like biblical things just that we find in scripture that that re like how do we see jesus as a healthy leader not as a narcissist yeah yeah even before jesus comes on the scene i think of john the baptist and he says i must decrease and he must increase mm. and, and whether we're narcissists or not i just think that is a fantastic prayer yeah um i also think of something that c.s lewis said where he said you know humility is not thinking less of yourselves, it's thinking of yourself less. Ooh. And I think that's a small nuance, but it's a it's a big change. That's huge. Um, on that. But as far as Jesus, I immediately think of Philippians 2. Um, you know, just at the beginning there when Paul just goes with such uh, clarity and urgency in talking about Jesus stripping himself of everything, mm. every right he had to be able to go with joy toward the cross. Um, I, we're in the season of Lent right now, you know, which strips us away of our own longings yes. and our own attachments. And it does make me wonder if everyone practiced that, how much narcissism would remain in the church. Yes. Like how much does Lent every year, these 40 days of stripping us of ourselves, um, lead, leading us to the cross with Jesus that, I don't know, but I, yeah. I, I think of that Philippians 2 passage immediately. Yeah. It's almost like I really appreciate too the way Jesus continues to withdraw into the wild places. Yeah. And that, you know, all this stuff, all this hype, all this attention, and he withdraws to be with the Father. Like his identity is not found in the praise and acclamation or even the, even just, you know, the PR, good or bad but it's found with his father. Yeah. And I love how he, he especially uh, for me, it, it, I re, it really rings out when I read the gospel of Luke, how Jesus just withdraws. Like it feels like every other, every other chapter he's withdrawing somewhere or he's just getting back away into the wild place and how that is actually a place of strength because he finds his identity and then he moves forward into the calling that God has for him. Yeah. A lot of withdrawal in Luke, 
And we see in Mark, there's a lot of the messianic secret, as mm. scholars call it, of like, he does a miracle, shh, don't tell anybody yes. that I healed you of your blindness, which I think would be just close to impossible. I'm blind <laughs> yeah. my whole life. I see, how did it happen? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, never mind. Yeah. I'm not allowed to tell you. Yeah. What? I'm still blind, but right? I can see you. But it's then weird. it says like, you, so he heals people. And then there are a few times it says, but they went and told everybody what Jesus had done and it hindered Jesus's ministry. Mm. I mean, it's, that, that's a fascinating thing that you think that with all these healings, you think like, oh, this is the time. This is the credibility. Here it comes. My platform is being built. My influence is growing. But Jesus goes, shh. And some of them, it says he warned him sternly. Yeah. Not just, hey, could you do me a favor? Don't share yeah. it. Just, hey, listen to me. Don't share with anybody what just happened today. That's a stern warning. That is a stern and warning. And I just don't know many leaders that would say, hey, that good thing I did, do not tell anybody I just did that. Is, am, I, am I clear? No. Don't tell anybody what just happened. It's not time for to, for us to talk about this. That is just so rare. It, it just feels bizarre in our minds because it's just not happening. Oh, man. <laughs> yes. It's because because we do want the PR. And I think yeah. even, even to come to a place where we can actually recognize that, like, yeah, it feels good to be noticed. It feels good to that. And that's, but it's like Jesus had such a way of recognizing, man, it's about the Father's work. And we don't want the glory to, to fall on us. We want the glory to be reflected to God. And so how we continue to do that, I don't know. I, I think this opens up a can of worms for me. Yeah. Um, and yeah, uh, and also too, uh, we really want to encourage you to listen to the end, uh, even like the finishing comments that we have. We have some giveaways that yeah. we're really excited for. Um, and we're really looking forward to our time that we have with Chuck. Dr. Chuck DeGroat is professor of counseling and Christian spirituality at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. He's also the co-founder and senior fellow at Newbegin House of Studies in San Francisco. He's a licensed therapist, author, retreat speaker, and spiritual director. Chuck has spent the last 20 plus years in a dynamic combination of pastoral ministry, seminary teaching, and clinical counseling. He's written several books, including Leaving Egypt, Finding God in the Wilderness Places, The Toughest People to Love, Wholeheartedness, and his most recent book, When Narcissism Comes to Church, Healing Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse. You can follow Chuck on Twitter at Chuck DeGroat. Please enjoy this conversation with Chuck DeGroat. Well, Chuck, it's a real joy to uh, have you here on the podcast here today on the Monday Morning Pastor. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah. Well, one of the things that you wrote just on Facebook, uh, I think a few days ago, maybe last week, that really teed up this conversation well, you said this, I'll quote you, which is kind of awkward, but I'll quote you on this. You said, I talked to a church planting network assessor yesterday Mm. with a strong emphasis on, quote, gifts and skills for planting and character didn't come up until I brought it up. How can this be? Friends, this is just another reason we're seeing narcissism, abuse, and unhealth among pastors. Yeah. Unpack that a little bit more. Well, that was a whole two days ago, and that that's a long time on social media. I can't even remember <laughs> what I was thinking. Or, <laughs> well, that was, you know, so what was so interesting about that was I, it felt like a conversation that I had when I was first breaking in kind of in the mid nineties, you know, and church planting was ramping up in, in the PCA, which was the first denomination that I was in. And and it was so focused on gifts and skills. And, and so it was just sort of surprising to me that at least in this one conversation, I didn't want this to be descriptive of every assessment or assessor or, but at least in this one conversation, character was kind of an afterthought. And I think what happens with that sometimes is that when we focus merely on gifts and skills, we're, we're talking about uh what this guy can achieve and the influence that he can have and, and the people he can draw. And we miss out on, on important conversations about emotional and spiritual health, uh, integrity, humility, um, marriage, and the, the quality of, of one's marriage, the quality of one's relationships and connection in relationships. And so uh, it's just been my experience doing a lot of assessments over the years, church planning assessments, is that sometimes that can be missed. And that's really sad to me 
because I've had a number of friends uh, also who are church planters who crashed and burned in large part because they were either not trained well or not assessed well. You've written a lot on wholeheartedness and narcissism in the church, which we'll get into, loving those people who are really difficult to love. Yeah. It seems what you're after is church lead. You have a passion, it seems, for church leaders to be healthy and whole. Is that a fair statement? And if so, why is that so why are you so passionate about that? Yeah. So healthy and whole. I I'm well, in part I'm passionate about it because I think for me, I had a sort of crash and burn. Uh, in the mid nineties, thankfully I was still in seminary, but it was a counseling professor in seminary that put words to my own divided life and my own living out of the false self and my arrogance and how that impacted people. And so, uh, I've had a real passion for, uh, integrity and living from the center, living from the core of, of who one is one's life hidden with Christ and God. Right. And so, uh, I, I, I've just seen too many pastors in ministry uh, suffer under the weight of, of it all. And, and we all know the way, you know, most, many of your listeners are pastor, pastors, right? You, you just can't uh, sustain in ministry if you're living out of that false self, uh, whether it's uh, that false self is um, more egocentric or performative or funny or visionary, whatever it is, you just can't sustain in ministry uh, like that, you know? And so you've got to do your inner work of, of becoming more integral, more wholehearted. And that's, I mean, we could talk a whole lot more about that, but that's been a real passion of mine over the years. Do that work with pastors. Mm. Why do we avoid that? Why is that so tempting to just put on the shelf or in the back burner? Yeah, I, I think part of it's we're scared. We're just scared of what it exposes in us, you know, uh, when we're found out. One church planter that I worked with a number of years ago now said to me, this is the only self I know. Like, this is the only game in town. I'm, I'm the man. When I'm up on stage, I'm, I'm that guy. And, but when I'm here and you and I start talking about m- maybe there's more to you, I just feel empty and I don't know, I, I don't know what it is. And so I think we're scared. I remember working with one pastor who, when we really got down to root stuff, uh, had to deal with some abuse and, and trauma. Uh, and, uh, like that was, that was from when he was eight years old and he was like, Chuck, I have lived to avoid this for 40 years. I don't want to touch this. I don't want to go there. Um, and I think part of it, it it just works, you know, to be that guy, the visionary, the influencer, the, you know, the magnet personality, um, you know, maybe you grow your church and maybe, maybe you become the, the leader, the pastor, the author that people look to and, and who wants to give that up? you know? So. Wow. That's, I I think that resonates with a lot of people, especially as they're, uh, you know, potentially thinking through how small my church is right now or how things don't look so good. Um, And even the, the, you know, how do you see sort of the, like the state of the church really feeding into some of these issues that you're talking about? Yeah, that's, that's complicated, you know, because I, I think people will say, well, narcissism, this is kind of a recent phenomenon, right? And I want to say, look at the history of the church, you know, <laughs> the Middle Ages. Look at the popes, the bishops, the, you know. So it's, um, but it it has. I do trace a little bit of, of this in a new book that I wrote on narcissism, where it's uh, there has been a kind of um, oh evolution of narcissism in the church, you know. And and I do think you know when I look back to the mid '90s and and the growth of kind of the missional church. A number of us were drawn in. I mean, I studied Leslie Newbigin back in, in college with Mike Gokin and was uh, really steeped in that world and the Tim Keller world. But I also noticed with that came the, we want him and not him. In other words, we want this guy that seems to be able to, you know, uh, take take the arrows and he's got a thick skin and he's got a great presence and he can raise money and he could, you know, I think we set ourselves up for it uh, by... Uh, by maybe unintentionally creating this profile of someone who is narcissistic. Uh, that's really sad to me. And I think it, it calls for a kind of reckoning with what we mean when we say leader or pastor or shepherd. Uh, but I think that's at least part of it. It's probably much more complicated than that though. 
Well, talk a little bit about that because I think the word narcissism, let, let's dive deep into this book that's yeah. just coming out. So narcissism, we say, oh, you're such a narcissist. And we say that in a non-clinical term. Yeah. So with your clinical background, first define for us what it is clinically, yeah. why we should care about it. And even, well, yeah, I'm throwing three questions at you at once. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, the, yeah. but yeah, start there. And then I've got more follow-ups, but yeah, what is it do. clinically? How would we define that? It's tough. Yeah, you're right. We lose it. We use it pretty loosely. Uh, you know, we call politicians and and uh, Hollywood stars narcissists, right? Generally, when when you look at the DSM five, which is like the Bible of psychology, right? It talks about a few things. It talks about grandiosity. It talks about a lack of empathy. It talks about uh, relational, sometimes vocational impairments, impairments of identity. Uh, these are kind of core core uh, attributes of, of one who's narcissistic. Uh, that doesn't tell the whole story. And I, I go into this in the book that uh, there's a lot more than meets the eye. And the typical caricature of what we call grandiose narcissism is not the only profile that, of a narcissist. Um, there, there's a kind of uh, the guy on stage narcissism, right? But there's also something called vulnerable narcissism, which is... Uh, someone who looks a little bit more self-contemptuous, maybe is a bit more passive aggressive. You know, the grandiose narcissist is the pastor of a church of 10,000. The vulnerable narcissist is the pastor of a church of a hundred, but we are the true church. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've got the right doctrine. We've got the right action or feeling, whatever it is, you know? And so uh, in, in this new book that's going to come out, I actually walk through the nine faces of narcissism. I kind of use the Enneagram as a launching pad for that uh, because it can look different in different personalities. Make sense? Totally. That, totally. Wow. So wow. As, as we think about that, and this may be an unfair, I mean, I've, I've heard a lot of statistics regarding it thrown out there regarding the percentage of pastors who are narcissists. Yeah. So I'm not necessarily going to like nail you to a particular number unless you're, yeah. you, you want to share that, but yeah. it seems to be the church and the pastoral role attracts yeah. narcissists. Why yeah. is that? And how prevalent is it? Yeah. Um, I was going to joke and say 100%. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a colleague who often says, uh, I think ministry is sort of a magnet for narcissists who, who, who of all people who wants to get up get on stage and speak on behalf of God, you mm, know, mm. in a world where the majority of people don't like public speaking and they get anxious around that. Uh, there are those of us, and I was in ministry for 15 years before becoming a seminary prof who are drawn to getting up and speaking on behalf of God. Uh, the problem is there aren't good numbers around this and there aren't good studies around, um, uh, around an exact percentage. Right. And so, uh, there's more work to be done on this. Uh, I, I, uh, I talk about uh, the fact that when I do my assessment work, uh, by and large, most of the folks that I assessed fit within what we call the cluster B personality disorders. Uh, in this DSM that I talked about, they're cluster A, B, and C. The B is kind of like the narcissistic group, you know? And so whether it's histrionic or borderline or narcissistic or antisocial, they, they kind of test in that. And that's really interesting to me, not all of them, but I'd say a good 60 or 70% of them test within that. Now, that doesn't mean when I say that, that they test narcissistic. Mm -hmm. It's a spectrum. And so I'll talk to people and I'll say, hey, there's an elevation on your narcissistic spectrum. Can we talk about that? And some will say to me, thank you for saying that. I've always wondered about that. I'm really curious and I want to be, I want to be better. And others will say, I can't believe it. You psychologists are always... And then, huh. then I have a fairly good sense of... You're like, you just proved <laughs> yeah. my point, buddy. <laughs> you are. I was going to ask you guys, which one of those yeah. two? Well, <laughs> the lamb is you. Right? Yeah, right? Uh, so, so, you know, you get sort of a sense of that, but we need better st statistics on this. Mm -hmm. Well, I... You know, I think with with the Me Too and the Church Too movements and yeah. all the different things that are happening, it's like we see this spiritual and emotional abuse that's happening all around us. So, like, how how does a pastor begin to, or how does a congregation to begin to like like will there be these narcissist witch hunts, you know, and things yeah. like that, or how do we begin to like, I guess, as pastors, even to 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 form some language around that, and even to see healing and health come out of these places? Yeah. You know, I, I, uh, P 
I sometimes people get on me as I write about this kind of stuff because they think that I'm too hopeful. <laughs> Interesting, <laughs> you know. Uh, I I I don't think the word narcissistic defines the person at the core, right? I think it, it defines um, a persona, a false self. Uh, it's a descriptor, like other descriptors that we use, addict. Um, but uh, and for that reason, I, I've got hope. You know that when when we um, when we begin talking about this in churches, it's not just like we go after anyone that scores, you know, onto the level of narcissist and we get rid of them. Um, I, I've hoped that we uh, we as as a church of all places, right, of all institutions, as followers of Jesus, that we're concerned about uh, redemption, right? We're concerned about pursuing the heart, and so. Uh, yeah, I certainly don't want to see a witch hunt happen, but I, I do want us to take this with a deadly seriousness because I'm I'm seeing a debris field of spiritual abuse, emotional abuse, gaslighting. I mean, it, just a lot of pain and trauma in the church as a result of narcissistic leaders. Mm. So, you know, we've we've spent a lot of time um, in the last few years as a culture talking about the damage and like the brutal damage of sexual abuse. Yeah. Can you speak to spiritual abuse a bit? Like some people, that might be a new term for some folks. Like, what yeah. does that look like? Yeah, yeah, it's it's far more subtle, right? You know, so that when I talk about spiritual abuse or emotional abuse, uh, when I talk about spiritual abuse, it's kind of a spiritual form of emotional abuse. It's a it's a wound without visible scars, right? It's it's the uh, it's it's sort of the wound to the soul. Often is is what I like to say, and so um, it's the the bullying and gaslighting husband who says to his wife, "No one believes you." You know, when you talk about my anger, when you talk about uh, what happens behind the closed doors here, no one believes you. You're nothing. You should be ashamed. You know, and she she walks away full of shame, with deep pain, deep hurt. Uh, add to that now, and you're just a woman. And you know what the Bible says about women and, you know, Mm. sort of fill in the blanks with Mm. that, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a form of spiritual abuse. And so uh, it cuts to the core, it leaves no bruises, and it leaves one feeling crazy and deeply ashamed. Uh, It's really painful. Mm. So let's flip on to the other side of that. That's rampant and needs to be addressed, but Describe some of the healthiest churches or some of the healthiest pastors yeah. and leaders you know. What principles or themes or threads yeah. are running through their particular church or organizational cultures? Yeah, it's interesting. I was just talking about this with uh, with some folks the other day where they said, you know, so, so-and-so so at this church, I won't tell you which one, uh, is a charismatic leader and uh, is an influencer and has a following on social media Uh, Does that mean that he's narcissistic? It just so happened that the person that they were talking about is someone who I've, I've done some work with over the years and is humble, uh, self-reflective, you know, in other words, Mm. uh, uh, goes around intentionally to people asking, how do you experience me? Mm. Uh, That's a really, I mean, that's a powerful question to ask. And so I know this pastor goes around and says, how do you experience me? Um, and, and asks for honest answers. Um, a, a man who's full of integrity. In other words, uh, what you see on the outside matches the inside and vice versa, uh, right? Empowering of others, you know? And so, uh, whereas uh, narcissists tend to be hidden and cut off and divided, living out of the false self, disempowering others, where they'd never ask the question, how do you experience me? This is a man that though visible, respected, and influential has done his inner work and is in relationship with people who know him. Uh, I would say is a, a very humble, very teachable, um, not without fault, you know. And his, but but you know, his staff members can come to him and say, "Hey, this is where your brokenness showed up the other day," or, you know, when you said that, I uh, that felt like a a jab. Did you mean it as a jab? And oh, okay, talk to me about that. Tell me how I impacted you. Mm. It's a beautiful thing. So uh, is, is this taking our spiritual journeys and emotional intelligence and combining them together? Is that what you're talking about or are they related, but still wow. totally different? Yeah, I think that that's, I think you're onto something there. I think that's exactly it. Because when we talk about sort of the core uh, identifiers of emotional intelligence, right? Um, that That's exactly what I'm getting at with a person who's self-reflective, is aware of how they impact other people, 
knows kind of what motivates uh, him or her, you know, from the core. Um, that's why I like using the Enneagram because I think it gets down to core motivations or longings, uh, not just our behaviors and how we impact people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But there is a real sense of, uh, as, as I uh, call it, wholeheartedness, an inner sense of integrity where, uh, you know, he's not fighting a battle. She's not fighting a battle to prop up the false self. You know, that's exhausting if you think mm-hmm. about it, you know. And um, when, I, when I fall into that in seasons where I'm just kind of living out of this false contingent self, as Merton talks about, you know, I just, I know it because I get really tired. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't feel connected to people. In fact, I feel really alone and disconnected. And so I think you're onto something when you say emotional intelligence um, in a kind of spiritual sense, you know. Our spiritual journey, humility, and emotional intelligence. I just, I just, yeah. that struck me. I wonder how those blend together. So, yeah. as you speak on this and this idea of wholeheartedness, let's sort of get meta here for a second. So, yeah. we all have blind spots. So, in your work, have you ever found yourself wondering, like, what if I think I'm wholehearted, but I'm actually not? What if others think I'm the toughest person for them to love? Or maybe even worse, what if I'm a narcissist and I don't know it? Do you yeah. ever get caught up in your head? Does it ever get meta for you? Yeah. Uh, yeah, there have been times like that. I think where, uh, I, I think I'm, I'm thinking now back to, uh, I was living in San Francisco and pastoring, uh, about seven years ago. And there was a season there where I was busy and I, w- I was not, in fact, the book wholeheartedness really emerges out of how scattered I was during that season. And I had a, I had a, a, a season there. It was maybe a week where, I I was sort of faced with myself. Um, uh, Shortly after that, I started with a new therapist and started doing the work. But uh, the word that came to me during that time is you are such a phony. Uh, Mm. You're going and talking about it. I'd spoken at a Redeemer City to City conference on the spiritual life of a church planter. And um, that night I was so anxious. Uh, I drank too much. And so I woke up in the morning and I had a headache and I didn't feel well. I just thought you were just such a phony. Um, that was one of those seasons where I was faced with my own, again, falling back into, I mean, it's not like, Hey, I'm healed. Like, look at the three of us. We get to record (laughs) this podcast because we're just so healthy. And no, we we wake up to, uh, to this in seasons, I think. And, uh, hopefully we've got good friends and spouses. I know I've, I've had a a couple of friends a couple of years ago say, Hey, can we give you some feedback about what we're seeing? I was so grateful because they were seeing something I couldn't see. Mm. So, yeah. That's such a that's such a difficult place for many pastors who already feel super vulnerable and super alone. How would you how would you just suggest people would begin to cultivate, you know, let's say they're hearing this and they're like, "Man, I really want that." Yeah. What what are some really practical steps of cultivating that? Yeah. I don't think you can do it in isolation. I'll say that. I think mm. you need relationship. I think you need people in your life. I'm not talking about a, an accountability group, you know, where we just go over, you know, uh, uh, the, the sins that we've committed during the week. You know, I'm talking about real relationships where people see you. The, the kinds of friends who came to me a few years ago and said, can we tell you a little bit about how we're experiencing you? Um, so yeah, number one, I think you have to do it in relationship. I, I think secondly, this requires you to do the, the, the work in your own life. And I think that means connecting the dots of your own story. Um, as you connect the dots of your own story, you, you begin to understand how the false self or false cells begin to develop in your life when they begin to develop. And I look back at my own story and it took tracing back to my early days and some of the impact of family dynamics to see how, oh yeah, subconsciously I just began to develop this, this strong exterior. I didn't want people to see me. Um, and I think it, I think what we're learning more and more through neuroscience and trauma studies is it's waking up to the present moment. Uh, it's actually being aware of your emotions and of your body 
uh, I come onto a podcast like this and I have to be very aware of where are you right now, Chuck? What are you bringing into this conversation? Are you present right now? What are you feeling in your body? And so I think story, I think relationship story and, and um, awareness are, are three really critical components. There's more to it than that, but those are three big ones for me. Hmm. We've That's great. We've talked about um, narcissism, but I also loved your book, Toughest People to Love. In fact, I love the cover image of that book, this balloon that's just hovering over a yeah. bed of needles uh, yes. about to be popped. And it's just this image that creates a visual, visceral reaction in me yeah. when I saw it. Yeah. Does that image represent the feeling of what it's like to love the unlovable? <laughs> yeah. Um, or to be so grandiose and so bloated and be on the verge of it all exploding, right? Uh, you know, uh, I, I think... I think that was an image that was created out of this understanding of narcissism in a sense, you know, that that's a more general book about uh, loving the difficult people in our lives, including doing the work of, of getting to know how, how we're difficult to love, you know, but mm -hmm. I think that that image is, is a really powerful one. I think a, a lot of these, when I think about some of what's going on in the church today and um, uh, so, some of, uh, you know, some of the dramatic stories that we're hearing about coming out of a variety of denominations and, and networks. I think in, in some cases, some of these men and women were on the precipice of, of uh, some kind of destruction, some kind of meltdown, some kind of decompensation, you know. Um, and, and even just today, earlier today, I sat in my office with a man who just six months ago uh, had uh, some sort of mental breakdown uh, and we talked about what was going on and he said, I was living like this and he clenched his fists, you know, and he mm -hmm. said, it just broke. My psyche broke and that's it. You know, we're, s I think in that place, what we don't realize is though he seems strong, powerful and grandiose. He's so fragile. Uh, he's so very fragile. And that's what gives me, uh, the motivation to do the work with men like this, because if I can mm. get behind the curtain, you know, if I can just kind of slip back there, if he just lets me in a little bit uh, and reveals to me a little something of what's going on behind the scenes, I think that there's hope. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Let's say that there are elder teams or there are boards of ministries or there are leaders within a church that say, Chuck, I get it. I, I believe you. I want to do something about it. Practically, what can we do to create environments of health and safety that encourage our pastor in the direction of what you're talking about? What practical advice would you want to encourage them to do to create structures of health for their pastor? Yeah, that's a really good question. And and oftentimes when I when I go in and work with churches, we really have to work with what they've got to start with, right? What kind of polity, what kind of structures do they have? I often find in these non-denominational networks that is very loose uh, and there there's very little accountability uh, or transparency for that matter. And so um, I think structures are a part of that. I think creating good structures where there is accountability and, and uh, responsibility. And I think uh, transparency is a big piece of this. I think uh, uh, one of the things that I find when I go into churches that, that sort of have narcissistic systems is that people are afraid to talk. <laughs> They're afraid to name what they see going on and for fear that they will be fired. We see stories like this uh, emerging uh, in, in some of our, uh, some of our, our church news today, right. Of, of pastors who are fired, uh, given NDAs told not to talk. So I think a culture of transparency, uh, this, this is where it, it takes the lead pastor and takes a strong elder team to say, we value this. We're all accountable. Uh, we're all responsible to one another. Um, yeah, so I think those are really crucial parts of it. I think building in practices with one another, relational practices that invite um, the kind of conversation that I mentioned earlier, invite mm -hmm. people to give sort of like 360 assessments of how do I experience you? Not just how am I doing, because that's that's not enough. That's like that first question about skills and gifts and not talking about character. Not how am I doing only, but uh, how how are you experiencing me? And, um, and when we put that question on the table and we create a culture like that, remember the church that I was at in San Francisco, I tried to create some of that, that culture. And I began by saying, I give you all permission to say to me, this is how we experience you, Chuck. And, and I'm going to tell you right now, let me tell you a few things that you'll see from me that, 
uh, will hurt you, annoy you, uh, terrify you, you know? And so we create a culture of, of transparency and honesty. Mm. One of those things I've heard very practically is pastors have an elder team that would say, we have $1,200 yeah. that that's set aside yeah. about a hundred dollars a session for you to go see a counselor. We're not going to ask which Christian counselor you go to. All we're yeah. going to ask is at the end of the, the fiscal year, how much money is left in the account? And yes. we want you to say zero. <laughs> then once a month, we want you to do that. And I thought, man, what a ridiculously practical gift that you can yeah. give yeah. Um, as one of those tools. You know, I, I think what's a little tricky about that sometimes, I'm a therapist, so I'm you know obviously a believer in, in counseling. Mm. What I found is that uh, there's a new kind of emerging narcissism. Remember how I talked about how it evolves? You know, mm. I call this phenomenon... Uh, vulnerability, F-A-U-X, vulnerability, where he's able to use psychological language. He's able to uh, say, yeah, I've been seeing my psychologist. I've been seeing my therapist. Wow. He's really good. I'm connecting the dots in my, you know, I'm, I'm really seeing how, where it's just sort of a smoke screen. Wow. So he wow. Does, he's, now he's got the practices and he's taking the vacation time and he's doing Sabbath. And it's like, look at me. I, I've got it all. You know, I'm doing it all. And yet people come to me and they say, but he's still a bully. I'm still scared of him. Uh, he, he doesn't receive feedback. Um, he's demoted me because I, I went to him and I said, hey, can I, can I bring up a concern? And so there are things like that. So it's evolving now in ways that are, uh, uh, you know. Fascinating. Uh, to be aware of, yeah. That's, That's fascinating. so fascinating. It, I think some of the ideas around, and you called it vulnerability. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Um, it, it's almost like the way that I, I've noticed recently vulnerability can seem really manipulative. That's right. And there can come, there can come these moments when someone's sharing something really deep and then you realize like, wow, that really dinged me or it was a total manipulation of everyone uh-huh. within a room. Um, and so I guess the, the question that comes to mind there is like, how, how do we begin to even like call that out in ourselves? And, and I mean, I'm sure it comes back to the relationship and story and yeah. some of those pieces, but like, are there, are, are there, like, what would you do with a pastor or a leader, you know, high profile, low profile, who completely blew everything up, like classic narcissist hmm. com- comes to you six months later with this deeply repentant heart. First of all, like, has that happened? And then secondly, yeah. like, what's your posture with that person? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm thinking of a specific example. And I, whenever I give examples, I try to um, cloud the details just enough. Um, I have had people uh, come to me and do like cease and desists. Like you, you said something on, on uh, Twitter and it was about me. And I'm like, no, I didn't. It's <laughs> <laughs> sophisticated to think that in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Right. But you know, I, I was working with this pastor where there was a kind of, uh, there, there was a kind of reckoning and uh, he was now out of ministry. And he said, you know, when I, when I was going to my therapist, I went to a therapist. I, I used to take pride in the fact that I said, I go to see a therapist every week. And I said, well, tell me about your work with that therapist. And he said, well, every week I go in and I'd say, uh, he hurt me and she hurt me and they hurt me and my staff is no good and my executive pastor is incompetent. And, my, and he's, he, he'd say, yeah, I'm so sorry. I, and he'd, you know, so in other words, the therapist enabled him uh, in the course of, of, uh, of 10 years of therapy. And so, you know, uh, this is where, you know, circle back around to that vulnerability phenomenon, you know, uh, what happens with therapy, and I, I know this because I do the work, is it happens in a va- vacuum and it happens in isolation. I'm not hearing how the staff members experience him. And so when he comes to me and he says, ah, oh, yeah, my executive pastor is just really hard. And, you know, we talk for an hour about how hard his executive pastor is to work with. And, but we never get around to really the problem is him, you know, because I don't have all the data. And so what I'd say is great. I'm glad you give him $1,200 a month to do therapy and, or whatever it is, 1200 for the year. Uh, but there have to be, there have to be kind of relational assessments, ways of cultivating transparency within that staff that, uh, uh, that, that I think uh, require him to do a, a harder and deeper work of, of accountability with others, you know? Hmm. Yeah. So what do you long for, for pastoral leaders in the American church? What do you, what is your heart's cry for wholeheartedness for them? 
you, I, you guys know Henry Nowen, right? And uh, I think probably a number of us in our generation uh, grew up reading Henry Nowen. And Nowen for me has been at sort of a lifeline, you know, and, and he, he talks about uh, the pull toward popularity, achievement, uh, power, influence um, as idols uh, of, of pastors and of the church today, right? And calls us back to the humble way of Jesus. And and I, I sometimes, uh, like I, I sometimes want to say, let, let's make the humble way of Jesus great again, <laughs> you know, um, to use that familiar model. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, I, I've got a, it's a, it's interesting to me when, when I, I serve at a seminary now, when pastors say, well, I guess I'll go out and I'll, you know, I'll serve a, I'm, I'm getting a call to that rural church and that's the only job I'm getting. I guess I can do that for a few years before I get a real call. And that's so mm-hmm. sad to me. You know, I, I, I would love to, to make, uh, going to a rural church where you've got to work part-time at the Starbucks sexy again, you know, yeah, yeah. parish pastor who's not well known and has 58 Twitter followers and uh, just serves the church faithfully. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I think a, another name that comes to mind is Eugene Peterson, you know, and Eugene Peterson has had a kind of deep and long relationship with the seminary that I serve at. And I think we try to cultivate pastors that have that kind of long obedience in the same direction, that kind of humility, but there's the pull, you know, there's that pull to, gosh, I want to, I, I want to be known. I, I, people sometimes say, Oh, what is, what is it like to write a book? And uh, I'll say really depressing and you feel empty after it releases. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, if only, if only, if only I do this, achieve that. If only I can become a, you know, a podcaster like you guys and have the influence. Uh, watch out what you ask for. You mm. know, it's really mm. lonely, really empty on the other side. Um, so the call to follow Jesus, the humble way of Jesus, to quiet faithfulness. Um, I long for that. Mm. Yeah. In myself too, and in others. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is, that is my heart's desire as well. And, and even realizing too, we, you know, we, we, we have a lot of pastors and leaders from different size churches. So even thinking of the pastor that doesn't have a staff and maybe pastors a really tiny church and maybe there's an elder or two, you know, what does it look like for him to cultivate wholeheartedness? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, Great question. And I'm thinking of, of a guy in Iowa who I spend uh, regular time chatting with and uh, did a doctor of ministry here at the seminary, faithful pastor in a small town, doesn't have very many friends, probably has different politics than a lot of the folks in the church, you know, and he's got to be very intentional about cultivating that relationship, those relationships through like video chats with friends, you know, uh, Thanks be to God that we've got the meet, the technological means nowadays, you know, but I even think back to, uh, you know, some of the great uh, pastors who are letter writers, like, like a Spurgeon or Samuel Rutherford or others where they really told the intimate details of their stories, even John Calvin, you know, it's, it's, who do you open up to? Who do you share your story with? Who knows you? You know, uh, it's interesting to me that, Charles Spurgeon, the, the prince of preachers, you know, for the last, what, 20 years of his, his ministry, couldn't preach, I think, a full, like, what, a half of the time, I think. I may be wrong on that because of his depression. And, and they he, didn't even have a word for that, right? It was fainting fits is how they called depression. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, but yeah. he, he was open about it. He wrote letters uh, to, his, to his people, to his parishioners, to family members, to friends. And so... You know, what, what does it look like for you to cultivate those kinds of honest relationships? So if you are that rural pastor in Iowa, uh, you can do some of your own work, and, but you may have to find a therapist over uh, Skype or Zoom mm-hmm. or something like that. And mm-hmm. by the way, you can do that. Uh, they're out there. And so do that kind of intentional work. Uh, don't do it alone. 
Well, Chuck, this has been a fantastic conversation. These always go quickly, but I feel like this one went faster than normal because, (laughs) in fact, my neck is a little bit sore from nodding so aggressively (laughs) in agreement with what you're talking about. You were nodding off. No, no, it's absolute agreement. I mean, Eugene Peterson, uh, right behind us, you can't see, but on my wall behind uh, our interview here is Spurgeon. And we've talked about Spurgeon and his depression. And so I feel like there's a kindred spirit in what Mm -hmm. you're talking about and Mm -hmm. what the heart of Monday Morning Pastor is. So Mm -hmm. we just want to say thanks for your willingness to carve out some time to be with us here today. Thanks for the work you do. I think pastors are a little less lonely because uh, of your your friendly voices out there, you know, and that's Mm -hmm. in part why I listen because I I try to train the next generation of pastors, right? And um, yeah, so thank you for for the work that you do and thank you for being so attentive and, and really attuned to, I think you're very intentional about this, attuned to the kinds of things that pastors are wrestling with. So I'm grateful. Thank you. Well, I've been following Chuck for a while, but it was really great to be able to have a conversation with him. I, I, I could have talked to him for another few hours. I know you could as well. <laughs> Every time he said something, I feel like 15 to 20 questions <laughs> popped into my brain. I was like, no. Yeah, you can tell. He talked a lot about doing the work, doing the inner work. You can yeah. tell he's done a lot of that inner yes. work in addition to study. And I appreciate someone who has done the study and the inner work together, uh, which is great. There was one phrase he used at the beginning where he talked about, he said, oftentimes character is an afterthought. And isn't that the narrative we are hoping to be a part of the conversation that changes, that character is more important than our skills and proficiency and ability? I feel like that's why that's why Monday Morning Pastor exists. I mean, I know that's that's what your whole life's work with Kairos is really about, yeah. just saying, how do we develop leaders? What does it look like? to see the next generation and this generation healthier. And and again, I think it's like we have to stop waiting for the next generation and realize like dude, we can make changes now. Yeah. And those changes can deeply impact the church today and the church of tomorrow. Yeah. But dude, there was just so much stuff. Uh, I mean, even his the, his new word that blew both of our minds, uh, <laughs> Phonabri- vulnerability. vulnerability. So good. Jinx. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fo f a u x vulnerability. But that's hard to say, but it's good. That really resonated. Um, it just I feel like there's a lot of things that really resonated for you know, for me and, and I know for you too, you're right. I, my head, my neck's a little sore too. I don't think I've nodded. <laughs> I felt like I was at like a 311 concert or something. Back <laughs> did in you the just 90s. say 311? Oh my gosh. I did. <laughs> I did. Yeah. But he talked about false self a mm. lot. Yeah. And it actually reminded me a lot of Brendan Manning, you know, who talked a lot about the real self and the imposter. Yes. And so the false self, and we all just, I talked about this in fail um, the book fail on um, masks, the different pastoral masks that pastors have their own shelf that we pull from the masks. And I didn't have language for this. I, if I did another edition, I'd probably include his vulnerability yeah. that like that becomes its own mask in and of itself, which is so ironic and so hard to identify when we're, when we're putting on a mask about vulnerability, which sounds counterintuitive. Well, especially in a culture that loves vulnerability. It's like, sure. oh, that person's so vulnerable. Yeah. When in reality- So authentic. So authentic. When in reality, that person could be totally manipulating you at that moment. And you know what it's like? It's like when you buy jeans with holes already in them, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like that's oh, what vulnerabil- that. vulnerability is, yeah. is buying you know, old Navy jeans that look like they're five years old, Yeah. but I just bought them. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so so good. So what are some resources that we can uh we we can uh let our listeners know about? Yeah, so one of the things that's really great is um IVP actually they're sending us some books and saying we would love for you to give out some of Chuck's books. And so um we are going to list all the books that that Chuck has uh that he's released but um the one that we're giving away is uh his newest book. And um so here's here's what we want to do. We would love for you to give away five books. And what we need you to do is we need you to email uh, Jane at kairospartnerships.org. Uh, that's J A N E at K A I R O S partnerships.org. Um, and give us a good question 
And uh, the first five people that email us really good questions, we will send you the book. And so yeah, and that book, again, is When Narcissism Comes to Church, Healing Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse, which just comes out like this week yes. with InterVarsity Press. Yes. Yeah. It would have been helpful if I actually mentioned the title of that book. No, it's <laughs> just a, like send a random book. <laughs> well, we talked a lot about narcissism. Yes, we, we did. We did. At the top. But um, yeah. So yeah, we would love, we'd love to do that. Um, just to bless you all as leaders and just to equip you as leaders, we're super, super excited to to be able to to give away that. And we're just grateful for IVP and for Chuck and their generosity. And so, Jer, how about some questions that you yeah. have? Yeah. And I want to mention again, too, like on Twitter, uh, talk about a great resource. Chuck is a great resource. So if you want to follow him on Twitter, it's just at Chuck DeGroat. And that's D-E-G-R-O-A-T, Chuck DeGroat. Uh, you can follow him there. So yeah, a couple of questions that really struck us. I, one of the ones that Chuck asked was, how do you experience me? And so to think, who are a few people that um, love you, love God, want what's best for you, believe in you, care about you, uh, that you can honestly say, give me the last 5% of the truth. How do you experience me? Um, and I think, I mean, pray for courage, right? And peace and that we don't become defensive and we just receive that and prayerfully think about that and process that. But how do you experience me? Such a great question. And then all the way back to season one, episode 10, we had on Josh Meyer, our friend Josh. Oh, yeah. And he gave a great list of five questions that we want to list again. This is and great. We're, and we're going to put in the show notes uh, this for you as well. Um, but uh, to ask a few people uh, these five questions. First one, name one thing I do really well without putty, putting any effort into. Two, what three words would you use to describe me? Three, name one area of my life where you see room for improvement. Where can I be better? Four, if you were put in charge of the world's resources, what would you assign me to do? And then lastly, what happens when I walk in a room? Good or bad, what shows up when I show up? Mm. Um, a lot of vulnerability there, but really, really good. And um, we'll put those in the show notes, but I've actually created a form based on what Josh Meyer shared with us. And if you'd like a copy of that form, we'd be glad to share that with you. All you need to do is just email me. Email me directly, jrbriggs at kairospartnerships.org. We'll put that in the show notes as well. But that's a resource. We'd be glad to give you those five questions if you just email me um, and be glad to do that. So pastors, as you go, may you go knowing that you can be your true self. Jesus died so you don't have to pretend. Jesus died so you don't have to live in vulnerability. And so may you be the kinds of people that name the elephants in the sanctuary because naming things has a way of taming things. May character not be an afterthought. May your character be a, the front and center in your formation as a follower of Jesus. And may you follow the model of Philippians 2 of Jesus who emptied himself for the sake of the world, not out of wanting to be a narcissist, but doing it out of amazing love. And may you follow in that path of Philippians 2 for the joy set before him. He did, he emptied himself and then was glorified as a result of that. So may you go in that. May you go in humility moving forward to realize we're all works in progress. And may we see the sanctifying work of Jesus in and through us as a gift and not a curse. God bless and bless God.